How beautiful is the human condition, really? Each of our backgrounds are so different. The person that you live with, that you care about, that you love, people that you see at work on the daily are so different in their background. The things that drive them to succeed might be completely separate from yours. And what makes you thrive and succeed in daily life is a pain point for them. That's the beauty of the human condition. But here's something else that's beautiful about it. No matter where you came from, hard scrabble background, silver spoon, everything in between, you can take what the things that pain you and turn it into your greatest power. In other words, what you see as your greatest weakness might be your greatest strength. And if you don't know what that is, we're going to talk about how we figure it out here today on the show. Johan Francis right here. Welcome to another episode of my show, Ego Killer. I'm glad to have you right here, where we do everything in our power to peel back the human condition and find spaces within spaces to grow through tried and true methods having to do with habit changes, checking the ego, and getting through sticking points in our life, repeated process and habit change strategies, we're going to do it. And it doesn't just have to be something like deep and interpersonal. It could be a physical injury that has kept you in a landlocked, stuck place inside your life. Like I mentioned before, the coolest thing in the world is knowing that that doesn't have to be your future. Your past and the story that you've recorded about why you failed because of self-doubt, because of a failed experience, because of a failed diet. It could be an injury that mounted up through chronic overuse or a freak accident. Your past, those things, do not become tomorrow's prologue and the starting point can be right now. It could be today. It could be the changes you make going forward in life. In fact, it has to be. So what we're going to talk about is the starting point. We're going to talk today about the ways that you can build toughness and resilience. In fact, I need you guys to go ahead and call over all of your Gen Z and Gen Alpha cohorts right now and sit them down in front of this ego killer so that they could get some of this food. Listen, resilience still matters in our daily life. Resilience still has a place. Constitution and toughness still has a place in today's society. We wrestle. I know if you're in my generation, you wrestle with our younger, the younger folks amongst us, right? We're wrestling with this very real reality of seeing how soft in general we perceive our society to be because We think that there is still a place for constitution and toughness inside their society, and yet we're watching the scaffolding of society be ever more bubblegum baby soft. And we're sitting here shaking our fists at clouds, being like, hey, remember all that time where you're supposed to stuff the bully, punch the bully in the mouth? Remember that? Remember remember how much energy? (laughs) Like if you're my age, if you're an 80s baby, You're a 70s baby. You're even like an early 90s baby. Remember how much energy was... There were TV series and full script writers who were brought in to help tell the narrative, right? About how to defeat bullyism by punching them right in the mouth. Right in the mouth. Right? 
and I know you, like, faithful ego killer listeners are not those bullies. <laughs> because to kill the ego means you're doing work, right? So this isn't just you. You're not that type. You're a little bit more than that, right? We're bully slayers. And now it's like, oh, run, tell that. Go tell the teacher. Go tell the authority figure. Out. Remember when snitches got stitches? Remember that? And now they call it telling the truth, <laughs> right? There's still a place inside our domain, inside of our society for resilience, in fact, I think that there is a bigger case today for you guys to build resilience. And it has everything to do with the process by which you turn your greatest perceived weakness into your best strength. So we're going to talk about that today. This is an ongoing process of changing pain into power. Pain into power. The trauma that you've experienced in your life. Maybe you grew up not having enough food in your household. Not having enough money. And you were made fun of. Maybe you had holes in your shoes. And walking home was really difficult for you. Right? Maybe you were growing up around alcoholic family members. And you lost parents early in your life. Whatever it might be. That has caused you to hold a really strong level of resentment in your adult life. That's a pain point for you. Take this time. To let me know in the comments what that is. I want you guys to list that shit in the comments. If I want to know the gritty. I want to know the gritty about what it is that has been holding you guys back. If it's one instance, right? One instance. You cut left when you should have cut right. And it busted out your kneecap. That is a physical trauma that's changed the trajectory of your thinking and your life process. Let me know what it is. Maybe it's something deeper, right? And you just came to terms, came to grips, wrestled with it for a whole lifetime of adulthood and came to grips with, man, every time I get to the point in my job, in my professional life, I can't access the third level. I'm stuck on a low vibration. And that's because of the trauma I felt as a youngster. All right. Tell me what that is. I want to know because not just so that we can revel in it like a pig and shit. No, no, no. I want to be able to start helping you guys write the comeback story of how you got past that. What you're doing today to get past it. Because Ego Killer is that. It's there to help. But we're also bouncing ideas off one another. So, in the act of turning pain into process, all right, we need to start thinking about how we're going to build some resilience. I want to focus... On a pain process that starts with you accepting and acknowledging the pain that has knocked you back. Right? You got to acknowledge that. When I trained Calvin some years back, Calvin was an ex-Marine. 6'3", dark skin. We called him Superman. Right? We called him Superman to his wife's face too. You know what I'm saying? He was a father, ex-Marine, ex-basketball player overseas. And an all-around nice guy. Local boy doing good, basically. Nice guy. Everybody liked him. You know what I'm saying? High school sweetheart, the whole nine. Superman was about it. Well, when I started training with Superman, Superman had put on a couple pounds, right? Superman was a active reservist. And though he gained some weight, he was still super to us. And, uh, well, went back to training, went back to power, 
working out with me. I remember we raced around the block one day for a warm-up, and Superman almost, I had to grab onto his cape to keep up because he almost burned me around the block, and I, I wasn't ready for that. I didn't know he could run that good. I remember he came working out, training, right? Went out to play some um, hockey, some fuel hockey or something like that. It's soccer hockey, I forget. And uh, ended up tearing his knee. So it's tearing up his hip, his hip labrum. Tore that labrum out. He was gone for a few months. Made a comeback. Snapped his Achilles tendon like a month after that. Was gone for months and months and months after that. And I just remember... Seeing him the second time after the Achilles tendon and just literally watching him take it all in as he became to the realization that he's not a young professional ball player anymore, that he's not a Marine anymore, that he is in fact an adult man. He is now part of the 99%. I watched him kind of swallow that as acceptance. And I say that because age can be the first way, especially physically, where you start to really have to swallow that giant horse pill. All right, so the first thing that's going to happen to you when you turn pain into power is like you just you just got to cold blood accept what's going down. After that, you got to think about forgiveness and and loving yourself. And you know, I, in fact, speaking of that, um, Calvin's wife, we were training with her too, and she would tell me she'd be like, "Yo, I try to I try to you know I try to help him help him out." I try to help him out, and he's not really ready to hear it. And he was really getting upset at me when I tried it. And I just told him, look, fine, you do it on your own. I'm not going to say anything else about trying to get you back in the gym. And I just smirked, and I'm like, yo, wifey is doing wifey things and getting shelled for it. She's getting mortar shelled for it. (laughs) But she doesn't know it. She's his greatest ally because she's allowing herself to get shelled by showing the highest level of wifey, adult compassion and love for her husband, for her man. She was building his self-confidence back. I could see it on my end when I talked to Calvin and hearing her say that it was interesting I was watching her like getting shelled, but at the same time being like, oh, you're doing the thing. And that's just going to happen. If you love somebody, you're going to get shelled when you try to help them out of a pit. And when someone tries to help you, you might do the bombs away, right? You might be there, you know, behind the mortar, letting those bombs rip. So um, it's all in the name of a process of self-love and forgiveness. This doesn't ever come easy, especially the more kind of ego driven you are. And ego-motivated you are, right? The ego tells you to ignore these barriers, to kind of be in a place of denial, to stay safe, and that your tiny bubble worldview is the accepted version. And anything running counter to that is inadvisable, acceptable, unacceptable, and deadly, right? That's what the ego says. All right, so how do we do... When we're past that point, we're able to kind of be like cool with ourselves. Like, yo, I'm getting old. Or, yo, that catastrophic injury was kind of a freak accident. Or maybe I didn't do enough recovery in the days where I was working out really hard. And now my body is paying for it. I should have listened to the road. Looked at the trail markers earlier from the destruction of my of my body. Like, for me personally. Right? I, I destroyed my shoulder. And then, oh, I destroyed my shoulder. And then... 
I learned the beauty called PRP, plasma, um, plasma therapy. And whoa, <laughs> oh man. Before that too, I got, they gave me the uh, cortisone shot and wow, wow. Like, does this stuff work or what? There is no magic pill, really? Have you told cortisone? Because it's amazing. But when I thought I destroyed my shoulder a couple years ago, I thought to myself, oh, it's all over. I'm not going to be able to do much of anything anymore. And that my physical days are pretty much a thing of the past. I'm not going to be able to get better. It was damaging for me personally. But I also thought about, well, why did this happen to me? Like, what went on? Well, I, there's a lot of signposts throughout my physical life that I probably should have taken more time over. I was lucky in that there is such a thing as PRP and that beautiful cortisone, right? That you use once or twice to help out a joint. And man, now my shoulder is almost 100% because of the PRP. I had a second chance, a second lease to look back and be like, now I'm not going to ignore all the trail markers of damage and pain. I'm not going to ignore that. Coming to this place where pain, your greatest freaking weakness, can be your best strength, driver, and motivator, it's about building resilience, being tough in, in, in on your square, showing some moxie in the pocket. Right? Showing some moxie in the pocket helps you to navigate challenges and to bounce back from setbacks called building resilience. I think I want you guys to think about this. Growing up, as a lot of athletes did, in the rough circumstances and environments that they did, you would think that none of them would ever survive, succeed, or excel in life, and yet they do. It's because they've mastered the art of resiliency. They've mastered using their brain laterally. Okay? They've mastered cognitive flexibility. We talked about it before with the neuroplasticity episode, but we're going to talk about how making new, reframing your mind, breaking routine thinking, rewarding the, the, the reward system in your mind. Problem solving, right? Problem solving all build plasticity in your mind that actually helps with your resiliency. And then to kind of coat or glaze all that beauty, like the pottery where you glaze it when you're done, right? It ain't done till you glaze that thing. Then you could go ahead and sell it at the farmer's market to the homie with the dreadlocks and then get that consignment bonus when you do sell it, right? Because that's who I imagine does pottery in, like, Northern California. Um, The glazing, the finish, right? The finish, the oil on your final piece, right? When you're all done for resiliency is going to be mindfulness, meditation, breathing techniques. All right? Let's talk a little bit about each of these things as we go through it. All right. Neuroplasticity is reorganizing. And a lot of those people, you in your life, and before we go on, think about your pain points. Some are greater than others. Some people that you know, their pain points might seem diminutive to yours. 
doesn't matter. Pain is pain inside the context of your own life. Nobody wants to feel, and this, it, because nobody wants to feel pain, right? Nobody wants to feel it. So if you do, it is almost valid all the time. And when it starts to interrupt your life, when you get to a sticking point, when your health deteriorates, when you realize, like I realized with you guys, that every time that you show up to work with me, every time that you're out here training, you're wearing that same ankle brace, the same wrist brace, elbow brace that you've been wearing for years. It isn't helping anymore. We have to structure ourselves, be more elastic mentally, come up with a better strategy. We're stuck in routine thinking. The routine is put on that brace, protect, guard the joint, and never look for any type of, you know, neuromuscular improvement. All right, that 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 comes really, really easily when we start listening to medical professionals and stop listening to ourselves and our bodies, the ones that we've been, you know, roaming around in, the, fle- the bag of flesh that we've been roaming around in for 20, 30, 50, 60 years of life. When we start to give all the power to medical professionals alone and stop being critical of the information we're getting, we end up in braces for far too long. We end up accepting pain far too long. Breaking routine thinking is highly important. That's repetitive thoughts and behaviors that are reflected by the same neural pathways. Remember we talked about it, that those are shortcuts from the initiation of a task to the result of that same task. That is your neuroplasticity at work. This is the opposite. This is where that shortcut has been leading to the same destructive result. All right. Thinking about being elastic in our fitness routine with the way we talk to the upper brass at our job, thinking outside of the confines of corporate talking points and ethos allows us to be more elastic. When I say take a person-centered approach to the way that you approach your job on a daily basis is a form of neuroplasticity. It already, to me, speaks of someone who is intelligent beyond the confines of a simple job description, right? Being buried underneath descriptors that may not describe the person who takes on the mantle of the job they're under. Be greater, greater than Right? We talk about problem solving and how problem solving is super beneficial. You hear all these jujitsu people and I, jujitsu men, jujitsu women talk about jujitsu like it was, you know, Montezuma, finding the lost tomb of Montezuma, right? Everybody who does these martial arts talks about it like it's some kind of arcane, like, super spell. It's like, bro, there's a jujitsu studio down the street, you act like you found Al Capone's tomb, but why do they speak so glowingly about it? Why do people speak so glowingly about like road cycling? More so to the end of jiu-jitsu, a lot of fanatics, right? Why? Because you're actively solving problems under, by the way, the most stressful conditions, right? This is mental exploration and it's done in the I'm not saying do jujitsu I'm saying solve problems put yourself in situations 
practice mentally how to solve through problems, do puzzles, solve more problems. Because again, it encourages multiple solutions and potential outcomes. It's a mental deep dive, discovery. It's mental caving, right? And it gets those neural networks to fire a lot differently. The brain adapts. The, the brain is able to reproduce positive, positive, not negative. Because again, we don't want to feel the urge isn't to be negative. Positive circumstances and we feel a lot better in life. This is an amazing thing that our brain is able to do, right? Remember, we talked about it before. It's all about that pruning. Like you see like, you know, like the groundskeepers, they go around, remember elementary school and you come back the next day and all the hedges were shaped like like um, Christmas presents, like all perfectly square and the most unnatural looking thing on the planet. Those box-shaped bushes that are totally useless other than, I, I don't know, maybe they serve as like, you know, they block visibility and line of sight. Um, those are your neurons. Those are the useful parts. The parts that are gone, they were pruned, literally. All right? Those, those changes keep us more neuroelastic. We talked about it before, too. This helps to decrease the part of our brain that metastasizes fear. I don't want fear in my life. Fear is an almost entirely learned conditional. Learned conditional, my friends. Learned. I'm trying right now to think about what a natural fear is. You can say like the mammalian diving response that you get from the act of waterboarding is a natural response that mammals have to water, which is why it is such an effective torture device. Oh, it just got dark. But other than something like that, I'm trying to think of what a natural fear is. And yet we all treat fears like they're natural. They're not. We taught ourselves. And because of that, we can unteach ourselves. Real talk. We learn to reappraise fear when it does happen. Right? Instead of being afraid of everything, afraid of a situation, afraid of giving a presentation, afraid of what might happen if I put too much weight on my left arm, I, I almost slow down time and I start to take that fear response, breathe through it and reassess, readjust my decision making, regulate my emotion, which is very important, right? These regions become less efficient in the brain the amygdala and we can respond better to fear right things that scare the crap out of us out of nowhere that there are super like i said mostly unnatural and irrational we build resilience emotionally so now you can confront more fears with a steadfast mindset they don't always disappear we just know how to handle them better and we return to a more pure form of ourself where mental contaminants weren't the order of the day right something called fear extinction right this is where the stimuli is experienced in a safe context live action problem engagement aids in fear extinction we no longer have the fears over time repeated exposure through problem solving diminishes the impact of fear when you get caught in jujitsu right you actually end up stopping and thinking oh wait i'm not (laughs) dead yet 
I'm not, my arm isn't in nine pieces. What do I do next? When you're up there, when I when you watch a stand-up comedian and they almost start to bomb right quick, or you're watching an improv. I always think about this in the context of improv. And somebody tosses them a situation. They don't know what to do. That's good. Because it's teaching them to restructure what comes next. We forget in fear-based mentalities and situations what comes next. Our greatest fear becomes our biggest weakness. It doesn't have to, right? Cognitive reframing and restructuring. Catastrophic thoughts just never happen, right? I remember training... Um, Cindy and Cindy, I would, I would, we were boxing together in a group and she was like worried about hurting her wrist. And I'm like, and she just kept harping on her wrist. Okay. Cindy was like five, two, you know, good looking, dark skin lady. Um, she was a principal and I remember she kept hurting her wrist. She kept worrying about hurting her wrist when she was punching. And I'm like, listen, what is the big deal with your wrist? What's wrong with hurting your wrist? She goes, because if I hurt my wrist, I won't be able to write up the reports that I need to. I'll end up having to go to the doctor. I'll lose my position as principal and I'll have no money. And I, we all started laughing because she kind of went off the deep end on purpose. Catastrophic thinking. The funniest thing about all that is you guys do this all the time. Not just over the top, you know, for our shits and giggles. I hear you guys do it all the time. Even if it isn't, oh, I just, you know, I, I'll lose my house because I didn't, I forgot, I forgot to exhale on the, on the catch portion of my clean. And it's going to end up in a catastrophic string of events whereby my kids get kicked out of high school. It's not that serious, but you guys catastrophize a little bit too much. It's not really your fault. This is a society that we've built that, that feeds on this. Anyhow, restructuring fear helps us to get away from cognitive patterns that lead to our worst possible scenarios. And what's left without that worst possible scenarios? Endless possibility, right? And lastly, it helps build confidence. You walk out with your chest out, your chin up, you're aplomb on 10. I know for me personally, when that confidence is high, Everything in life starts to be colored a little bit differently and a lot better. Because with confidence in tow, there's more gratitude. And we talked about more gratitude, right? We talked about it. Gratitude and ego are oil and vinegar, right? Ego owes gratitude money. Gratitude goes into any room gratitude wants to. Gratitude pulls up at the party, the after party, the pre-party. Ego's got to call ahead and see if gratitude's going to be there. Because if ego shows up and gratitude's there, gratitude's like, where's my money, bro? Where's my money, sis? Gratitude's like, did I say you can hang out here? You can. But ego just doesn't feel right with gratitude. Point being, like this. <laughs> if you're thankful, it actually becomes a lot harder for ego to take hold. So practice these things. Build yourself up. All right, my friends. And until the next one, stay all the way up.